Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Well, Donovan Duncan, welcome to Breaking Down Barriers. Good afternoon, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. I'll just give our audience a very brief kind of summary of your bio, uh, but I, I would love to kind of get a lot deeper uh, in our first question around what you do. But you're the Executive Vice President for Urban Strategies Incorporated, and you have more than 10 years of experience in development and housing industry, uh, managing and implementing property maintenance, recertification, federal, state, and local regulations, uh, and implementing an outstanding housing solution. And I think this topic is so relevant to our audience because when we think about economic development, we know that uh, home ownership and commercial real estate ownership is the best path to wealth creation. And a lot of our entrepreneurs are working in their business and not on their business and really just having an income. So I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about your work, your background, and your current position as executive vice president. Sure, David. Uh, and I, I will tell your listeners, um, I really hate talking about myself. So when I saw the first question, I was kind of like, oh, God, I got to talk about myself. So uh, for folks who uh, don't know me, um, I, I, I like to say I, I am uh, my grandmother's child. Um, she raised me uh, from an infant up until uh, she passed away. I am a public housing kid at heart. Um, I, I grew up in an environment, um, and my grandmother instilled in me uh, that your environment is not your conclusion. And those are things that uh, resonate, and I, uh, they're mantras that I use uh, in my day-to-day life. Um, and for folks who are practitioners who say, but what do you do? Um, I work for this amazing system that is named Urban Strategies that has 45 years of history in community, economic, and housing um, development. Our start was in one, uh, as a grassroots organizer in one community in St. Louis, Missouri. And now uh, we're working across the country in 26 cities and two territories uh, with this big audacious goal to ensure communities, people, and neighborhoods are stable and thriving. And we do that work uh, through a platform of economic housing justice. And I use justice loosely, and I think we'll get uh, more into that, what that means, Um, uh, uh, education, economics, uh, ensuring that people remain um, housed. Uh, and our goal is to, again, to ensure that these communities are stable and thriving. Our, re- our data suggests that uh, when we move into a community, average income is somewhere south uh, of uh, $8,000 per family. And within three years, um, that's somewhere across our system around thirty dollars to $32,000. So we're building economic wealth, economic wealth uh, in respective places um, to ensure um, that we can bridge as fast as possible the wealth gap in this country. And in my role, um, I get to partner pair with communities and our um, co-conspirators within our system to ensure that those things happen. Do you also work with commercial properties for business owners or are you just doing residential? 
So uh, good question. We're branching, branching out. I should have also, uh, I did not mention that we also are a CDFI uh, and we're bridging wealth with both uh, residential and commercial facilities. Uh, our work is largely predicated on a place-based initiative where um, comprehensive transformation needs to occur. Uh, and we're working um, to think through both what is the right housing solution, what is the right people to solution to ensure wealth is creation, and what is the right economic solution. And we're asking ourselves regularly now that these communities are starting to transition and thrive. Why can't business of colors be the yoga yoga studios or the Peloton studios or the uh, coffee studios and so forth and so on? Um, and we're asking ourselves, and we're bridging that in a commercial way to, as a as a way to deepen our understanding and wealth creation. This is brilliant because what we've known through our studies is that when people uh, when people who run the local watering hole, it could be, like you said, the yoga studio, it could be the corner bar, it could be a barbershop. When those people are affected, the community as a whole is affected. It's no longer just the economic transaction of the loss of that business or those business tax receipts the social fabric and the social capital of the communities affected. So what I love about this conversation today is this idea of place, because we talk about, you know, inclusivity, we talk about equity, we, we talk about all these other uh, key words, but we don't talk a lot about place and belonging. And for a lot of the communities that we're in, that is a, a key marker for what a successful thriving community can be like. Can you talk to us a little bit about why the sense of place is so important and how you pitch when you pitch economic developers about why this is so critical? How do you go about doing that? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. And I would say this uh, place is at the epicenter of all things. <laughs> it's at the epicenters of all experience. It's at the epicenters of transformation and change. It's at the epicenter of how people ground their self and who they are in their identity. Uh, I still remember uh, the community in which I grew up with um, that was um, demolished as part of an old Hope Six grant. Uh, and um, the folks who lived in that community, that property has now been gone for 30 years, still have an annual picnic understanding where each other's lives are, seeing the grandkids and the kids, seeing the folks who knew me when I was eight years old and now as a 45-year-old man, understanding with those the trajectory of those experiences. So place is at the epicenter of all things. You cannot drive, you cannot create agendas that are rooted in community and economic development without thinking about place. It is the most essential part of the conversation of the equation. It's people, could people live in place and those things are synonymous with each other. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about communities. You said you you started in St. Louis and St. Louis is a community that we work in as well. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about communities that you see have uh, a, a good uh, or at least some form of a blueprint around creating what you called, uh, you know, the, uh, this focus on place and people? Yeah, I, I would say um, if I had to look at our work and name a couple of cities who are trying to figure it out, I would think through um, uh, 
um, Norfolk, Virginia, and um, their People First initiative, which it, um, surrounds um, um, three large public redevelopment of three large public housing communities in which um, Tidewater Gardens is, Garden is the first phase of those that community-based development. Um, and from there, they, the city has passed um, uh, a legislation where they are using um, south of $3 million to help bridge economic development as those communities can uh, cultivate and thrive. It's one of the first places I have seen where um, the city apparatus has said yes to matters, and we're going to create a sales tax to really fund how it's done. And the city is really bridging what does community development look like and what does economic development look like from the perspective of place and people. It's, it's fascinating, right, to see a city says, yes, this needs to happen. And not only um, are we going to be intricate in it happening, we're going to double down and ensure that the individual's experience is rooted in the results and achievement for uh, for a different ecosystem when the project is developed. Um, that's the most succinct place that I've seen it done. I mean, I know there's probably many places all across the country and in my team around the country is like, we're doing it too. And I think it is happening in various aspects, um, but it's the more grassroots grounded in both resources and people uh, in a very powerful way. And and uh, if, the, if these questions are a little technical, I apologize, because this is such a good topic to educate our economic developers in. So I'm trying to uh, ask the more technical questions today. Um, I will still want to hear your story and I still want to hear what you are working on. But some of the, the technicalities behind how our communities can actually go after grant dollars or CDFI dollars around building these uh, you know, redevelopment initiatives. Can you kind of walk us through what that process looks like? Sure. I think it starts with a framework of that is rooted in understanding what your North Star. So at how we approach um, the work in community and economic development is to name what is the result. And be very intentional about it. it. Not saying, oh, we want to produce housing <laughs> or, oh, we want to um, ensure that this commercial real estate or this commercial core um, has businesses of color, but naming the result of for a population of individuals. So these 30,000 residents who live in this neighborhood, we want to create an ecosystem that is rooted in wealth creation by 50% improving their economic um, attainment by 50%. We want to ensure that you know schools are better off and kids get a quality education. Uh, we want to build businesses in a sense and create an ecosystem that's robust enough for those businesses um, to thrive. And once you are very lightly um, um, clear about that result, what does it look like from a shared, what we call shared priorities? Like what are the priorities that needs to happen? And I think we all and the listeners can say that some days you, you drive, we get so intentional about the work that we look up and we're like, oh, when did this building happen? Or, oh, when did this happen? How do we not know about this? So, but thinking about it, as you think, again, as you're setting the target of your North Stars and this is where we want to go and this is the result. These are the priorities that are really important. Wealth, business development, and not just business development, but business execution, meaning that those businesses are getting opportunities to perform and compete on these activities that are happening within space. 
and being intentional about the people. Like, how do you connect in the individual experience of folks who live in this particular community to the business apparatus so that they're paying a family sustaining wage? And then once you have named that and say, okay, there's a housing component to this, there's an economic development component to this, there's an infrastructure component to this, then what um, how, what is the opportunities or that you need to leverage to ensure those things? Uh, what are the federal grants that we can get, go after? Is that, you know, choice neighborhoods? Is that other so, sort of um, HUD um, grant? Is it something like a thriving community, right? Then also, where are the state resources that can help galvanize this change that we want to see happen? Is it low-income housing tax credits, right? Is it some other kind of um, small business uh, development initiative that you can bridge um, the creation of opportunities? And then think about your local apparatus. The, every city has the purchasing power of transformation and change, right? People live in cities. People at some point have some resources, being very intentional about the deployment of those resources and, and how it ties back to the shared priorities that everyone uh, have named. I know that seems very complicated but and, and simple at the same time, but you have to be very clear about the North Star, about what are the things that will achieve that North Star? And then who are the actors that you need to operate or operationalize to ensure that that North Star happens? And, and, and the apparatus and the funding mechanisms will happen. This is brilliant. We're gonna take your framework and we're gonna put this to test on one specific uh, problem that we all are aware of. And I'd love to kind of you know break it down just one more level. Um, I travel every week. You and I met in D.C. at uh, at the OFM conference, uh, right? And so when I'm traveling every week, I get to see um, just, you know, how the city is built. Uh, I remember going to Dallas 15 years back. And, you know, recently after COVID, when I went back to Dallas, you know, one thing that I saw was a lot of homelessness, right? And we know that a lot of this, the people are hardworking, good people that have fallen on unfortunate times. I, these are not people that they are cast out to be typically, right? It, and then I've talked to a lot of people. I was in an Uber in Dallas and the Uber driver told me, he's like, I'm one one paycheck away from losing uh, my apartment. And that's the reality for a lot of people. And given how much work is happening at the federal level, you know, that OFN conference was sold out and a lot of my my business colleagues couldn't even make it. That's how popular it was, right? We see so much federal assistance coming in uh, through all these different programs you mentioned. Uh, can you walk us through, you know, a city that might be really focused on helping solve these problems? You know, what are some steps they can take using the framework you just mentioned? Sure. So I would um, um, use the city that I live in um, and, and build upon um, uh, this coalition of, of homelessness that you named as a, a factor. And, you know, it's an interesting fact that um, when we think about racial equity and we think about racism in this country, um, um, I just read a piece that talks about that 40% of African-Americans, 40% of the homeless population in this country are African-Americans when African-Americans make up 12% of the population. So that seems like a huge disparity that um, for 40% of that entire population to be African-American, which gets to the root of, really thinking about the problem that we're trying to solve and disaggregating the data and saying, why is this? Why is this happening? 
But to give an example of um, homelessness and the fight against homelessness uh, and in uh, in the city of Cleveland, um, they have uh, the city and its apparatus in conjunction uh, with his um, housing first model um, has been tackling homelessness um, um, for many years now. Right. And uh, and they've done it in the same vein that I just named. Uh, they said chronically homeless, getting chronically homeless individuals off the street is the critical share priority. Right. So they brought the continuum of care to the table. They bought the Department of Human Services to the table. They bought the Housing Authority to the table. They brought several developers to the table. They brought enterprise community partners to the, the table and said, you are the coalition to lead the shared priority to end chronic homelessness in the city of Cleveland by, and they named the result, right? Being very intentional by the year 2030, right? So that coalition has been thinking through what are the projects and opportunity to ensure that it, we, they can hit that target. So they've been looking at low-income housing tax credits and federal funding through um, the continuum of care to really start to tackle the creation of housing to eliminate that barrier of chronically homeless individuals, right? And they are on the pathway, right, to surpass their original goal and, and have enough units in the city proper um, to end chronically homelessness by the year 2030, right? That's the very intentionality of naming the result, thinking about the pipe, the individuals who need to be at the table for that result, being very intentional about everyone's contribution to really that target, that implementation in those individuals, creating a plan for execution, mining and managing the execution of that plan. And when things are happening, ha things um, ha don't happen uh, as planned, really being intentional about having a discussion about what didn't happen. And then on the other side, operationalizing individuals to ensure that that target is hit. And that's the way that I'm thinking and our organization thinks about the execution of economic and community development. Wow, that's brilliant. That, that's such a specific example. Uh, I want to ask you another question around uh, this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of misconception in this industry. And I wanted to kind of help talk through especially because the economic developers who are the primary listeners of this podcast, can I help them understand uh, when it's done well, what are the benefits versus why do cities not embrace, you know, there's the dollars, there's the programs, it brings people together. Why do cities not actually go down this path, right? Like one of the things is like, you know, when you bring in low-income housing, they think the property values go down, things like that. A lot of these are fallacies or misconceptions. Can you help break down some of these fallacies to help us understand how economic developers should really be thinking about this? I would say a little differently. I don't think cities are not thinking about economic development. I think cities are huge enterprises that are thinking about all people, right? And sometimes the all seems very intentional to a few <laughs> and not truly all, right? Well, and that's just the nature of public systems, right? As a former public system bureaucrat, we I tried to get to all, right? <laughs> right? But it's, when you think about the apparatus, it was almost impossible to do that, right? 
but there's still an opportunity there, right? Because businesses and individuals and cities all happen together, right? And what we need, I think the encouragement, what I will encourage economic development professionals to do is shift the scarcity mindset that we all have, like limited resources. We have to do uh, incrementalism. We have to start somewhere. Oh, we the, the geography is so large. How do we make this happen? Oh, there's not enough um, footprints or footsteps and or rooftops to for that thing to happen. What is it that you want to achieve to ensure your city is vibrant? Like that is the question at hand, and not the rooftops. Not the streetlights, not the number of cars that go into a particular community. It's do we believe that all neighborhoods should have a vibrant ecosystem of opportunity? And if so, what does the apparatus needs to need to look like to ensure those things happen? One of the biggest fallacies in this country is that we're poor. We're the richest country in the, in the world, right, period, full stop. There's like, why why do we have such a scarcity mindset when we are the richest country in the world? Stop that. Like anytime someone comes to a conversation from a uh, perspective of scarcity, you should stop the conversation and say, what does it look like for us to have an abundance frame? Regardless of dollars, regardless of competition, regardless of the limited, as people name limited resources, all those things are true. But what does it still look like for us to have an apparatus that ensures that opportunities happen for all? And just that shift and change, I believe, is very nascent to the conversation of advancing a equitable agenda when we think about economics. And it's really important. That's a really critical piece that I believe we are missing in this equation. Do we truly believe that all means all in a respective place? And if so, what are the right strategies that we need to employ to achieve that? Sometimes I don't believe we mean, we think all mean all, right? We think you, in our system, we say 60% of folks, it's easy for us to accelerate to opportunities really quickly. The 40% of folks that, with, that we touch, it's a little bit more complicated, right? The, the, the road is not as straight and narrow as we would want it to be. It has a lot of bends, a lot of curves, a lot of bumps, and it's all in the bends, curves, and bumps that the magic happens. Anticipate them, understand them, and understand the population of individuals that you're trying to support and serve in a very powerful way, right? I think we we don't, if I had to criticize us as an industry, I don't think we understand and truly understand the population, their needs, their wants, their gift. I think we have what we call best practices that are predicated on other populations and we try to deploy those and when they don't work for a particular population we're like oh they didn't want it they didn't want it it's one of my things that i, I i'm really nervous about this moment with all of these corporate um, um entities deploying all these resources to racial equity and i'm nervous that that deployment is not going to happen the way that they want it to happen right they're not going to be able to achieve it in the same sense uh, that they wanted to achieve it, partly because they're not willing to change the, the construct of the structure so that it can be achieved. If you know that you have resource and uh, relationship capital uh, uh, challenges in places that you're trying to deploy, you know that balance sheet is not strong. 
you know they don't have the relationships in the same type of sense. You know they 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 have been in business for a number of years. Why are you trying to fit them into a particular frame and not shift the frame to meet their needs? And that's the dilemma. And we say compliance, right? Oh, the compliance of it all. Compliance is not, it's just a deterrent, right? Because I say regularly that um, compliance is a tool of white supremacy because the book has never been in color. Wow. <laughs> so many places this conversation can go. And it, you know, because when you when you mention this, I look at all the different ways in which we've tried to address racial equity. And I have exactly the same fears as you do, where they're going to come back and say, well, we tried. It didn't work. <laughs> it's not for them, right? Even just take uh, a lot of these black funds that are out there now. They're measured against people who talked about business with their parents at the dining room table. A lot of black founders don't have the support network to fall back on. They weren't brought up in the business world, right? And then to use the same tools of measurement for success is going to set them up for failure. And they're going to be like, well, they're non-fundable. What can I do about it, right? And yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more intentionality around how we define success, right? It cannot be the same metrics, right? Because we're not addressing the same problems. Uh, and also understanding, like you said, why they are in this business or in this game in the first place. Like, is this truly for racial justice or is it to check a box? Yeah. I think about um, credit scoring, for instance, right? When I realized that credit scoring has only been around like 35 years, <laughs> I was like, oh, why can't we change it? <laughs> right? The way they describe it is like, it's this insurmountable thing that can't be changed. And oh God, it's predicated on all the, of these factors. It's only been in existence for 35 years. I'm older than the credit scoring. <laughs> like, why are we having the conversation about change that meets the moment that we're in and creates opportunity for all, right? I think that's the tension that folks are having when people are, you know, advocating for their belief systems and their needs. It's from a perspective of not being seen for generations. So if we truly want to meet this moment outside of deploying resources, it's ensuring that we see people in their needs in a way that's conduct, um, conducive to opportunities and the creation of wealth, period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it requires a paradigm shift. You cannot, you know, uh, I, we've done, we did the study in Dallas to set up an entrepreneur of color fund and some of the feedback we received from small businesses and the support organizations there was that when they went to a CDFI, they felt like they were applying to a bank. And we were like, why is that? And we found out that most of the CDFIs had bankers on their boards. And they were proud of the fact that they never had to touch their loan loss reserves. And I'm like, those are both bad metrics. <laughs> like, you know, you have a loan loss reserve and you are a CDFI for a specific reason. You're not a bank. Right. You could be a banking institution, but you're a CDFI using taxpayer dollars to help people. Like, I think that, like you said, they've gone away from the problem they're trying to solve and put it into a box because a lot of business owners uh, are denied because of credit score. And credit score, in my opinion, should not be the primary determinant of who gets funded, uh, because that, again, you're measuring you're, you're coming in with the wrong solution. So we, we found that to be really interesting uh, in our study. And in fact, uh, you know, part of our solution in Dallas was to say that we need to look at alternate factors to uh, uh, 
to capital readiness, not credit score or debt to income ratio, because they were both incorrect markers, because those same businesses that were not funded were still in business <laughs> five years later. Uh, it's not that they were any less credit worthy, but they didn't fit that box. Yeah, it's the same thing that we um, uh, we um, tested some work with credit unions last year, who mission is to be community or- organized, right? That's in your mission. <laughs> you are created to be community facing, right? And you're still talking about these credit scores and you know loan equity ratios and yada yada yada. Yes, things ensuring that people you don't put people in compromising situation is really important and critical. But have the conversation in a way that's conducive to their needs, right? Uh, we've done some work with some entity that I won't name who was like, we're going to stand up this really large fund. We want, we care about racial equity and we're going to commit it to the tunes of several hundred billion dollars. Like we're going hard, we're going big, we're going to get it done. And so I was like, that is amazing. Let's walk through what that looks like. What are you willing to change? What? What do you mean? What are we willing to change? Okay, here's your underwriting career criteria. Okay, what percentage of your your current work, the work you've done the last 20 years, what is your failure work for Black, Brown, and Indigenous business today? Oh, we don't have that number. Well, let's parse that out because if you're making this big pledge and you don't understand is it, it, it what you're doing today is currently working, how do you think it's going to impact the pledge that you're making? And they said, we're, well, we're not really willing to shift our, our practices. Well, you're not really willing to have a good return on your investment because it's not going to happen. If you know already that the, the folks that you are targeting don't have the balance sheet to be to meet the current demand, why would you put that undue pressure out in the marketplace for everyone to see it as a failure? To a groups who have been marginalized and regularly are seen as failures. You're yeah. causing harm. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Uh, I'm going to shift to uh, ask about what are what is the next big thing you're working on? Oh God, that is such a good question. And, uh, and why I move into that, I would just say we have bank, we have bankers who are we have relationships with banks as well, and we love them all. Yeah. And we still ask. You the don't question. need any disclaimer. We, <laughs> you're coming from a good place. <laughs> I, know. I go into that conversation asking, "Do they believe in liberation?" <laughs> That's when I, when I start a relationship with a new philanthropic partner around our CDFI or a bank. I say, "Do you believe in liberation?" And if so, what does it mean? mean to you because if the conversation is i don't <laughs> and i'm not <laughs> then hey we're wasting each other's time <laughs> so yeah. let, let me move on let you move somewhere on yeah. and i think that moves into like what are we big what are we working on now that's big um and and what am i dreaming up my team tells me regularly that i'm always coming up with these grandiose <laughs> ideas and planning like here universe make it happen um I am really intrigued um, as we move into 2024 and beyond um, about the wealth gap. Um, and I, I would, with some folks in Memphis um, about six or eight weeks ago, and uh, we started this conversation about ecosystems and how we get different ecosystems to talk, talk and work in, more, um, in a more collaborative way. And our Forbes report 
was shared that, you know, name the wealth gap um, for African-Americans in particular at um, 830. I mean, it was $830,000. Like each African-American family will need some sort of um, assets to the tune of $830,000 to um, meet this moment and reduce the wealth gap. It was the first time I had seen like a number put to it. I've seen the number of years, right? 246 years for African-Americans, like 190 for uh, individuals of Latin descent and something, you know, 185 for indigenous folks. But I had never heard somebody say, and that number is $850,000 a household or $900,000 a household. So um, at, what we're going to do is we're going to name that target for every household we touch. So our, the num- we, we support about 30,000 um, households across the country in neighborhoods that roll up to about 600,000 individuals. And we're going to track the wealth um, accumulation of that 30,000 in comparison to the neighborhood at the target of having $830,000 per family with a two to 3% um, escalation every year. So I'm really excited by this because I want to see where we're at, um, where we, where we're at currently, where do we need to go? And then think about what are the intersections for those things to be achieved? Is it more entrepreneurial type activities? Is it more um, deepening um, our solution, our, and deployment of resources to businesses at a you know at a lower interest rate to help them pay a, a better way wage. Um, um, how are we thinking about um, investment um, differently to invest in strategies that achieve wealth? And then thinking about all those strategies in comparison to that gap and seeing how quickly we can get there per household. So that's that's what I'm really excited about that we're gonna work on in 2024. Wow, so let me let me understand a little bit more. So uh, 850,000 uh, in terms of um, uh, asset or income, what is the measure? It's, it's both in, because um, we're putting home ownership in that, in that yeah, category yeah. too, right? So number of folks we can move into home yeah. ownership, I also believe, I think, I'll say that as I loosely always argue with my team about is home ownership truly a wealth creation opportunity? I think there's some legitimacy to that. I think my home that I live in today as an African-American male has seen appreciation. Um, But I also think income for those subgroups have to appreciate at the same rate as their home or we're missing the mark, right? Um, Because we can move, we can move 50% of African-Americans or individuals of Latin descent uh, into homes. But if their income doesn't grow exponentially, the homes will be quickly depreciate (laughs) and they will not build wealth. And we never have the same conversation about the other side of that equation, right? So it's a measurement of all all assets. What are the things in that goes into one bridging wealth? Is it their four hundred one k? Is it the you know? Is it um, IRA? Is it owning a business? Is it owning a house? Is it ensuring that you have educational um, attainment funds for your children? So all of those things I'm going to and wellness we're going to throw in there too because we believe people of color and all people should be feel well and be well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the future is really a big focus on mental wellness too. Uh, on top of physical and financial wellness, this, yeah, I think there should be an emphasis on, uh, it's not quantifiable, but it is the reason why we do everything we do is that if we don't feel good, you know, uh, what is the purpose of money and, and everything else? Uh, this is amazing. Is there a way we'll be able to see your journey and track your journey as you go along this? Yes, we're going to write about it. Okay. And we're, I, I want us to um, create some kind of um, index that we put on our website that kind of shows us where we're at. You know, my, my team is like, <laughs> you do realize that the average household that we have has about $30,000 of income, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. But some, because I really believe people need to see it, yeah. right? We just had this conversation um, earlier this week. I was in um, Norfolk, Virginia, and we were talking about um, average income of the targeted population that we're have, we have, which is roughly about $25,000 today. And then we realized, I said, mm, let's measure that against African-Americans because about 99% of our population that we're supporting are African-American. In Norfolk, uh, uh, the average income for African-Americans is about $47,000. Um, then I said, mm, what is the average income of our white counterparts and the entire state of Virginia? And for our white counterparts, is about $75,000 and about $77,000 uh, for the state. So my my charge to the team was, what does it look like for us to get families from 25 to 47? Then once we get to 47, what does it look like to get for us to get all African-Americans in Norfolk to 75? I, I love it. I I am also uh, somebody so passionate about wealth creation. I've read a lot of the work that's come out of the St. Louis Fed around the statistics around wealth creation. And, you know, it's shocking, right, for uh, an African-American family that, the amount of cash on hand is like three days. If you get let go, you are instantly without cash versus for a white family, I think it was like 28 days or something uh, cash on hand, right? Like some of these metrics are shocking. And I believe, and that's why I asked the question about how can you follow a journey? Because what you measure is what you can change. And what you can measure is how you tell the story. Without the data, there is no story, right? Everything is anecdotal. And everybody can brush it off and say, well, it's that one person, who experienced that, but you put the data in front of them and now they have to react to it. <laughs> yeah. For, for folks who are in the urban strategies family who are listening to this podcast, it's just not me who always screams about data. You have heard it from Dave, <laughs> David firsthand. Cause I'd say that all the time. Yeah. Uh, who, he, who controls the data controls the narrative. Yeah. And it's, there's a, this, I'm not about trying to change narrative, right? Cause I don't even know what that means. I know people are talking about it. It's a whole industry now for me. I'm like, no, the narrative is we're going to create opportunities and those opportunities need to look like X for people to really bridge this conversation until this if we truly, you can't have a conversation about racial equity without talking about capitalism. Yeah. And we need to stop as practitioners trying to separate those two things. Capitalism is in the DNA of us as, as in the fabric of the dirt of this country. Practitioners need to lean into capitalism and bridge that through a justice frame. Period. <laughs> We keep saying, we keep acting like that we don't want to tackle capitalism. Like it's this bad thing. People need resources. People need to eat. And if you ask 
I know I ask my if I tell my staff that they're not going to get their raise every year, they don't they're not happy about that. <laughs> they're not sitting up here like, well, we know we don't like capitalism, so we shouldn't get our we shouldn't get our increase, <laughs> right? They're like, why? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's it's a good conversation to have in the world of nonprofit. We are a for profit yes. company, but we deal with so many nonprofits, and I tell my team that. You know, getting paid is a good thing. It helps build your dreams. It helps build your career. It helps bring, you know, if, uh, if so much to your family, allows you to have your dreams. So I think it's, uh, yes, capitalism is kind of in the fabric of this nation, but how do you do it equitably, right? How do you make sure that everybody prospers in the prosperity is, is the key. Yeah, and I think the way you do that is diversifying the prosperity, right? Right. You can't have people without opportunities always at the beck and call of the one, the two or three or ten percent who has all the opportunities. Yeah, you, we're waiting for them to change and do something different, right? Yeah, and, and what, I, what I'm saying, like, no, that's not. We can we can continue to bridge their understanding and the shift and change in this country. But we also need to figure out like where is the innovation and how do we build wealth? And I I I would I was at a, a convening that um a group spoke at uh that named that I think it was something like eighteen trillion dollars of wealth is gonna transfer into the hands of a thousand people within like the next ten years. And so there was the, the entity that was giving this presentation was like, you got to get to know those people. <laughs> and those so I said, people. <laughs> I said, so where, where do a thousand people live? Where do they live? <laughs> like, so we could know what grocery store to go to so we can meet them. Right. Because the reality is poor, the, the likelihood of someone without opportunity meeting somebody that has a trillion dollars of wealth is slim to none. <laughs> yep. They're probably not going to any grocery store if they have a trillion dollars of wealth. <laughs> they probably are not. Yeah. Which country club are they yeah. going to? Yeah, exactly. So so if somebody wants to follow you, how do they follow you? LinkedIn, uh, email, what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, um, really good question. LinkedIn is probably the most okay. uh, succinct way to connect with me. Um, uh, email is also an option. My email is donovan.duncan at usi-inc.org. Uh, yeah, and you know, I'm always around. I will I will put this in the chat, uh, in the show notes, so okay. uh, people can get your LinkedIn and your email. Uh, but this has been such an amazing conversation and uh, such a, a relevant conversation for 2024. So knowing that if we do all the things you're talking about in 2024, the, the American economy and the American people are going to be in a really good place. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and I look forward to working with you in the new year. David, thanks for having me. <laughs> nice. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.